Gandhi wanted a return to sort of village ideas, uh, you know, the village-centric uh, traditional ideas, Ram Raj. Uh, Vivekananda, if he were around at the time of independence, he wanted, uh, you know, Hindu ideas brought in for society. Uh, Sri Aurobindo was a great thinker of uh, collective consciousness evolving, had a lot of social thought uh, based on Vedas. But these are not the, these are not the ideas that took root in the Nehruvian era. Uh, Nehru was a Fabian socialist, uh, not a communist. Uh, not hard revolution, but still a lot of the ideas of Marxism in how to organize society and politics. So let's discuss Nehruvianism as distinct from the what might have been a Vedic social model for India after independence. Nehru uh, many times uh, affirmed that he uh, was committed to social reform and that he was a positivist in the sense that he saw uh, a materialist approach uh, to social reform as an indispensable thing in India because he felt, like many people of his generation, that India had too much spirituality and not enough uh, reformist thinking and action. So you can certainly see the influence of people like Auguste Comte and Herbert Spencer and Marx in Nehruvian thought. Basically, what you call the scientific temper, what Nehru calls scientific temper, is very much an application of positivism. Now, that has certain implications, because clearly it uh, wanted India to be modeled mostly on Western 19th century Enlightenment concepts. Their 19th century is India's future, kind of a Nehruvian idea. And that's, that's, that's part of the colonized mind, if you, in, a well, in a sense. We weren't able to affirm that we have enough resources in our own Shastra. And this, the, a person who spoke loud and clear against it was Deen Dialupadhyay, who had this idea of Chitti. Uh, each nation has a Chitti, a certain collective consciousness, a certain Atma, a certain essence. Uh, and it has to discover that and go in accordance with that. And India was not going in accordance with that when it followed secularism. So it seems that not only was there a Gandhi versus Nehru uh, crossroads and we went Nehruvian, but also the whole uh, Hindu movement, uh, the whole Hindutva movement had its own social theory uh, from Vivekananda onwards. And Deen Dialopadhyaya kind of re uh, reached a high point in that. And this was also dismissed and sidelined by the Nehruvian bandwagon. And the Nehruvian bandwagon got entrenched in Indian social sciences, in the Indian uh, sociology departments, uh, the NCRT textbooks. This is how IAS officers are trained to think about India. Uh, it shaped India's foreign policy, how we look at the world and who we are. When we apologize, what we want to uh, reform, what we consider wrong about ourselves. These colonial ideas affected uh, the people who created the constitution because, in the sense they enshrined Lord Risley's hierarchy of castes. Rather than saying it should be individual based and Varna is not the same as caste, our enshriners of the constitution made this, made this permanent. We also, the government also adopted this Aryan model, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's now very difficult to get rid of it. So a whole lot of social constructs, political constructs from the age of European social science uh, have been introduced into India by Indians themselves. 
and it's not easy to get rid of all this. You know, at the time of independence, uh, you, there was a sort of a global consensus which was definitely uh, Western influenced or Western dominated. And even if you had the left-wing thinking uh, and the Soviet Union, the communist bloc on the one hand and you had the capitalist bloc on the other, there was still that sense that there was no alternative to uh, global thought, which in fact was Western thought. And you barely could think of any country adopting its own traditional values and developing an independent model. It was practically unknown. Intellectually, we were colonized. Correct. We got some political freedom. Financially, we were still dependent on foreign aid. And intellectually, we were following their models. You could choose between the capitalist model and the Marxist model of the West. But you didn't, we didn't have our own. Or you needed, you could build a compromise, which is what Nehru tried to do. But, you know, again, I think Nehru's approach to Indian culture was very interesting because essentially he saw it as a the soft sciences, you know, which means things that you do for enjoyment, like music, literature, or poetry, culture. well, or high culture, but you don't really use a lot of that in your day-to-day -day management because that is required. That requires hard science, which means economics, uh, you know, politics, uh, econometrics, all those things which are very much Western, and that's why you have this great division which appears early in the Indian independent state between, which essentially is an heir of the British colonial state, right? I mean, very few things were challenged. In fact, uh, somebody made an interesting uh, observation that, that was Panikar, by the way, Raimundo Panikar. He said, you know, uh, the thing that had been kept that still had a very strong Indian socio-political culture was the Indian princely states. And with independence, they disappeared. So whereas the British colonial state, in a sense, was pretty much kept untouched in the new structures. Uh, the traditional Indian states were wiped out in the name of unification and modernity. So uh, definitely India lost a lot of its traditional statecraft in that sense. An interesting point is that this left-wing social thought, sociology from the West is not what drives Western multinationals and capitalism it, it's not the thought of IBM and Google and Facebook and, uh, you know, Monsanto and all of those companies. So isn't there a kind of a double speak? Isn't there a kind of a hypocrisy or a, or a split brain within the West that it's uh, universities and the humanities and social sciences are going on preaching and teaching this kind of a social science, but they're not implementing it and practicing it in their own industry? Well, I think it's a complex issue because even in India, uh, you observe the same split between left-wing academia and uh, a lot of uh, capitalist management. But we take it a lot more seriously. In India, the media takes the left-wing much more seriously than in the United States. I mean, you don't have Noam Chomsky on CNN. You don't have him out there. Nobody, nobody in the mainstream even knows the left-wing uh, as mainstream intellectual thinkers. They are okay in the academia but they are not important in the mainstream media. But we have turned the Ramila Thapars and Irfan Habibs and Nirul Hussain's and all these people into like the icons that speak for who we are. The, but in discussing who we are as Americans, in the mainstream, the left-wing voice is very feeble. In America, that's probably true, but not in Europe. In Europe, uh, the left-wing gets tremendous hearing and respect. Uh, whether it is so-called liberal left-wing, you know, what we call caviar socialist, or if it is the hardline left, which is also very present, and I would say even more so in the last few years.
another hypocrisy I find in the left is its embrace for Islam. Uh, you wonder why is Islam the darling of the left when there is so much in Islam that is completely uh, should be theoretically unacceptable. If you look at, if you are honest uh, to the principles of uh, social thought, then the whole position on women, uh, the, the fact that it's a, re a religion with a lot of dogma, not into the scientific kind of empirical approach, hasn't produced too many scientists lately. Uh, all of that should be cause for serious criticism by the social sciences, but they absolve and kind of treat Islam in a very careful way. They do, but that's largely political. Uh, I would say, however, that uh, there is a section of the left wing in uh, Europe, which, especially in the <laughs> recently, has been highly critical of Islam and has intervened to try to ban the burqa and, you know, ban a lot of uh, Islamic practices in Western countries. But uh, other than that, you also see that there is a sort of an alliance or tactical alliance between the left and certain Muslim forces which are seen as oppressed. So you see the left as a religion of oppression, that whoever claims is oppressed needs to be supported because he's fighting the capitalist ruling class. Now, it's not very clear how that applies to the Muslim world, but it's still a factor. Yeah, but then if you apply that logic, uh, the sheikhs in uh, the Muslim world are oppressing the Muslims more than anybody else is oppressing. Correct. So then they should overthrow those guys rather than fighting against the West. Yes, but you see, that's where the, uh, I mean, we can go on like that for a long time, but that's where uh, you might say the Western left agrees with certain Islamic movements which claim to be fighting uh, Muslim autocrats, right? So there is that concept that, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood wants a republican egalitarian Islam, and that is fine with the West because they are supposed to fight uh, the Muslim capitalist oligarchs, you know. So, well, again, that is neither here nor there, but that's, that's a, part of political games. That's a, that's a whole separate conversation we'll have. All right. Thank you. We've had a wonderful conversation. It was nice to have all this uh, discussion on so many, uh, you know, valuable and ideas. Yeah, thank you.